case file number 1.07. I can't believe I scanned the whole thing, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, uh -huh. do you scan the networks that you're responsible for? I do sometimes. Uh, sometimes I even get yelled at <laughs> because I did it and someone detected that. <laughs> well, that's how you know somebody was watching. Yep, exactly. So what kind of tools do you use usually? Nmap is the, the one thing I use. And then your typical, like, uh, just Nessus scanner for scanning everything. You know that or that Nessus basically uses Nmap underneath. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I had written a Python tool before my last laptop uh, crashed that used Nmap to scan all of our IP spaces just to see if there was a system or two that we hadn't put into our uh, uh, IPAM software. Excellent. And then it would put it into the IPAM software. And uh, that code all uh, got destroyed, and I never backed up because I am an amazing sysadmin. Yeah, without Git, you got got, yep, I guess. pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, we're talking about scanning the whole internet. The title of the episode is, uh, I can't believe I scanned the whole thing. <laughs> Actually, the first tool we're going to talk about is Nmap, in fact. Okay. I remember it from not very long after it was released, uh, mm. back in 1997 by Fyodor, a guy named Gordon Lyon. He wrote the original tool because there were a lot of kind of specialized scanners. We talked a little bit in the first episode about kind of proliferation of viruses at, at the time and how they were opening ports to aid in their right. propagation because yeah. they were kind of sloppy at, at that at that time. Well, you get various companies, whenever there was a worm that was out there, they'd create a scanner so you could find everybody infected. Uh, and there were, you know, various other open source tools looking for specific things. Well, Fyodor basically said, screw this point solution bullshit. Mm, okay. And created a tool that did all of it. Could scan all of the ports on blocks of IPs specified multiple different ways. And very quickly as it went along, he added new features like banner grabbing built into it. Yeah, yeah. And probably the most important single thing that Nmap did, operating system identification. You're familiar with operating system identification. Yeah, I think we talked about it. Do you know how it works? Well, I know we talked about it on a previous podcast with the, the time to live. Uh, no, actually, it's uh, it's sequence number randomization was one of the big important things. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that one. Um, I, had, I had heard time to live was like another way you could... Uh, TTL and various ways that the, that the host responds to good service connections and bad service connections are also identifying. Mm -hmm. But the first core piece of it actually came down to mostly OS or um, sequence number randomization. Hmm, okay. And at that time that nobody was really looking at those things, some systems had essentially no sequence number randomization. It was just plus one. 
plus one. Yes. In some <laughs> cases, it was plus one. Some yeah. cases, it was four bits of randomness. Oh, geez. In some cases. And at the time, a lot of systems were very vulnerable to packet injection. If you had tried to make a mm -hmm. connection to a Unix box on Telnet, which was also very common at the time, you would get a sequence number. And if it wasn't doing any port randomization or trivial port randomization, then you could predict that the next person to connect would have, would be using packets in a very small number of sequence numbers. Yeah. And Telnet is entirely clear text. Yeah. So a common thing to demonstrate at the time that people did use occasionally, especially since hubbed networks were also pretty common at the time, <laughs> is injecting commands into people's Telnet sessions using this. Oh, nice. Yeah, we never, when I first started my uh, cybersecurity program, when I first went to college, they, they showed us that. Like we did uh, some um, uh, Wireshark captures for Telnet. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, look, it's all in the clear. Don't use Telnet. Right. And the thing is that while it's fairly old school at this point in time, at a point in the 90s when the internet was a real thing, this was actually a pretty common problem mm -hmm. that networks had. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, that network security as a practice only started to get real serious looks by a lot of organizations after they'd been cut through several times by worms. Yeah, I think I've, I've even encountered um, network devices in active environments that still like, you can only talk to them by telnet. Yeah, uh, there are some. The last one I remember encountering was a network managed uh, fiber to copper transceiver. Mm, okay. It could be um, worked on, on two, in two ways, uh, SNMP v1 and 2 and Telnet. Oh, so none of them encrypted. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen one of those, but you know, if a connection's around for a long time, no, maybe nobody replaces the, the actual device. Yeah, there's a lot of, hey, it's working, why should I replace it? Exactly. Well, Firedor basically built a lot of this stuff. Uh, NMAP was the first tool, at least the first tool I ever heard of that did those kinds of things. And one thing is for sure that he quickly generated the largest database of operating system identification information. Mm -hmm. And a lot of vulnerability scanners, not very long thereafter, this was actually like, into the second generation of vulnerability scanners because the, the first ones were just, hey, we can do a thing. Yeah. Uh, they started actually licensing the database of operating system identification from Fiador. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Every vulnerability scanner I've ever worked with that I've managed to ask the question has licenses that information from NMAP. It's quite possible that at least one of them doesn't and has generated it essentially themselves, but it was the canonical source for a very long time. Right. And I think um, uh, their bug track mailing list, was a, that was a huge thing for um, the uh, secless.org uh, bug track. There's a link to it from nmap.org. Mm -hmm. I, remember, I remember subscribing to that for a while to just get all the latest news of what was going on. Yeah, uh, yeah, and secure.org was a, a pretty important site for a while. If you want to get a list of a lot of old school tools, they still have their tools list up, but I don't think it's updated very much. I think, I, yeah, I think I remember looking at like that when I was in college. And yeah, like, yeah, some of the tools are very outdated, but. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that is definitely coming up for me as we research some of these episodes is how long some of the tools that are still pretty relevant have been around. Yeah. 
so one little piece of NMAP trivia that, frankly, they love to talk about whenever NMAP comes up in a, in a convention talk is that it's the first real security tool to appear in an actual movie in the Matrix 2, Matrix Reloaded. Okay. NMAP is in there and it's first on screen appearance of a real honest to God security tool that people actually use. Really? I'll have to, I'll have to check that because I just, I just finished the, I saw HBO has uh, the trilogy. <laughs> so I started the Matrix 1 and finished that last night and I'll probably watch on the second one tonight. It showed up in a few other movies that in fact, it's, uh, if you go to nmap.org, yeah. uh, I think they've got a link to all the movies it's appeared in. I feel like it was on Mr. Robot at some point. Yes, it was on, it was in, in Mr. Robot. That, that was, uh, you know, I'd always heard about that, like how, how good it was. And I finally started watching it like, uh, maybe last year and I was like oh yeah he's actually using like legit tools and like this isn't like um uh, I can't even think of the uh like CNBC drama yeah where they like they fly the plane and they have to like hack into the plane as it's getting close to the ground but it can't land yeah well I will say that that Mr. Robot had the advantage a lot of earlier shows didn't of having a much better base of tools and stuff to work from yeah yeah and I think they had someone actually consulting um the project and like hey this is what we this is what you'd use i tell you 15 years or so ago i know they had a consultant because he was in line behind me when i was going to a magic the gathering tournament yeah that's the kind of nerd i am um <laughs> but uh uh he actually was talking about we we figured out that we were both in cybersecurity because well we were in line forever mm-hmm. and he said that he that uh he was working consulting some of that stuff and i'm like and some of those things he told me were definitely an improvement over what the authors originally had, yeah. but not, you know, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think my favorite by far is the uh, Hugh Jackman on uh, Swordfish creating virus in like all 3D space. I don't know. I take some of the stuff from Swordfish and where we got the title of this podcast from uh, the movie Hackers. Some of that stuff is just allegorical. Yeah. I've always said that that the stuff from the movie Hackers of all the CG stuff evokes the same feeling I get when I'm really digging into something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, so another thing that NMAP added, but wasn't in some of the earlier stuff was the NMAP scripting engine, which is just a useful thing to know about that uh, you can put some scan parameters in and then under certain conditions, it can then execute a script against what it finds yeah yeah so if you wanted to do more advanced banner grabbing or some kind of interaction that can be very useful and there's um like i was talking about the tool uh there's a um, nmap library that you can just pull right into python yeah yeah uh, and that allows you to script not just the scanning but all the data handling before and afterwards mm-hmm. yeah there's one very useful tool that I find myself using or have found myself using pretty regularly. That's an NMAP scripting engine tool, which just as an example, it runs a script against an HTTPS server, well, any SSL TLS service. And because of the way that SSL works, it doesn't tell you everything it supports. Mm-hmm. Um, the server doesn't tell you what it supports. It only agrees whether or not what you offered is supported. Right. Well, the scripting engine iterates through the entire list of possible crypto negotiation protocol. Okay, to get you a list of everything. Yeah, the versions and the, and, and the, and the uh, cipher suites and whatnot, and gets you a list so you can populate that list without going to the configuration of the server. Hmm. I've used that a chunk, uh, especially in HTTPS troubleshooting with an HTTPS decryption proxy. Interesting. That'd be good for your recon as well. It is. 
yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. I, I plan on doing my OSCPs uh, at some point. So I'm like, ooh. Yeah, well, so I mean, Nmap is a tool for recon. It's a tool for figuring out what you have on your network if you're working on the blue team side, and it gives you really, really good information about a single host. It can get really in deep. It can do some banner grabbing, service identification, active ports, and everything. Mm -hmm. But one of the limitations of this kind of thing is you're using the network stack that's on the box, and it can only keep so many connections open at a time. Right. One thing about Nmap I didn't, I, I didn't get to before we start talking about some of that stuff. Nmap can do things that are not standard connections. Mm -hmm. When you do the SYN scan, it's only doing what's called a half-open connection. It'll send its connection out and get a response and then drop the connection. It makes the system faster, but it's not the best thing for the server. But other things that you can do is you can actually send what's called a Christmas tree packet and scan with that, yep. which is all of the uh, TCP flags set. Yep. And that can help you do things like identify whether or not the filtering device between you and the other end is a stateful or stateless firewall, because apparently some built-in industrial mechanisms are stateless at this point. Hmm. They have stateless firewalls. Interesting. A stateless firewall uses a lot less memory. Yeah. You just have to be explicit about incoming and outgoing traffic. Right. Um, anyway, back to our, our, our synchronous scanning explanation already in progress. <laughs> so you have to keep track of state if you're scanning like Nmap does. You're making a connection, you're mm -hmm. getting a response and knowing that you got a response to that connection to figure out whether or not you got a response, whether or not the port was closed by the TCP standard, because there is a difference between being blocked and being closed. A block by standard, by, by the TCP RFC, yeah. sends a reset rather than nothing, mm -hmm. which is, again, part of how the OS identification stuff works. Gotcha. So you can have a real limitation in the amount of open connections you have. And when you're talking about 3.4 billion IP addresses with 65,535 ports per system and both TCP and UDP, your system just can't, it takes a while for it to get to actually do that many connections against, a, uh, against all of those hosts. Right, yeah. Well, Dan Kaminsky in his uh, old school tool set Pakitu Karitsu created a tool called ScanRand in 2002, which basically solves that problem. Hmm, interesting. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Well, the ScanRand idea, and I, I couldn't find if anybody else came up with this idea before Dan Kaminsky did. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of it, but I'm willing to be wrong about whether or not he came up with the original idea or not. But uh, Pakitu Karitsu was some of him playing around with the stack. One of the tools in there was a kind of a version of Netcat that operated on layer two instead of layer three. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of, of, of somewhat crazy stuff. Yeah. But ScanRand, I'm pretty sure was a very new idea at the time, which was instead of making the TCP scanning stateful, making it stateless. Mm -hmm. What that means is it just generates a lot of packets with one process and receives them all with another process without really keeping track of what's open and what's closed. Hmm, okay. It's got a little bit less fidelity because you don't really know very much about, what, about what's closed. Yeah. And you aren't doing any more interaction past the response packet, because, but you're doing very similar to what, the, to what the, um, that half open scan, that SYN SYNAC scan does, mm -hmm. where you're sending out the SYN packet and you're getting back a SYNAC. Now, he 
encoded in the sequence number, essentially an identifying mechanism to make sure that the packet he's getting back is, is a response to the packet he sent. Okay. But by doing this, he was able to massively scale up the amount of speed by separating sending from receiving. Right. So a little time passes. ScanRand is out there and people are using it. But then around 2013, best I can tell, there were a few people that made some bigger tools for really weaponizing this. Uh, the one I'm going to talk about mostly is MassScan, which it came from my MIT, I'm pretty sure. That one I feel like was touched on in one or two of my classes. We did touch on that because this is where the internet police thing came from. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, Robert David Graham and David Maynor in, 20, uh, Maynor in 2013 released this. Um, the other ones that are worth mentioning is ZMAP and Unicorn Scan, which are both, I'm pretty sure, around the same era. ZMAP, I think, came out maybe a hair before this. So ZMAP, that's different than ZenMap, right? Yes. Because ZenMap is just the GUI on top of ZenMap. Right. ZMAP is an asynchronous scanner that does all of this in user space. What MassScan does that differentiates it is it essentially implements its own TCP stack in order to get all the speed that the kernel can give it. Hmm. Okay. Not super important until unless you're really talking about performance, in which case you're probably getting more information than we're providing in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, implementation takes some work. You have to do some of the stuff you would need to do to make a multi-threaded um, snort sensor or something like that. It uses the same... PF ring technology to let you talk directly to the network device at the kernel level. Right. It's a kernel module and lets you thread it through multiple processes. It's pretty crazy. Hmm. Interesting. But I mean, it, it's totally doable to implement it by yourself, but it takes a little bit of work. Mm -hmm. It goes to a lower level than, than user land tool. A, a slightly divergent question, because actually now I'm curious. You mentioned PF, the PF ring. What does the PF stand for? I know that I've looked this up in the past, but I, I'm not sure about the answer. Packet factory is the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, I know that I've worked with it a little bit, but I don't remember. Okay. You know, like I, I played with PFSense. Yeah. And in my mind, that was just the name. Like you didn't register that the PF actually meant something until you just brought up a PF ring. And I was like, wait a second. It was like the same. No, I... Pretty sure both of those projects come from BSD roots. Mm. And I think the PF comes from BSD. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'll just look that up after the. That I'm more confident in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just like the ScanRAN separated those things into two different processes, MassScan actually lets you separate them into different hosts. Hmm, okay. If the sending side spoofs the IP of the receiver, then the receiver can get the traffic. So, so you could actually have a bunch of different receivers uh, from the same sender because they just changed the, the IP that they're spoofing. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of cool. And they can scan the whole internet in minutes with this thing. Yeah. It's really, it gets really crazy. And the thing is, if you're generating packets that fast and you have systems on the other end that are trying to actually respond rather than barfing packets, which is what MassScan's doing, mm -hmm. uh, you could really end up bogging down the routers and, and the networks on the other end of things. Yeah. So one of the 
other major technical things that MassScan put in place is how to distribute scanning across multiple networks. Okay. It can't do things easily sequentially because if you've got multiple connections open, you're just doing stuff in the same network. Mm -hmm. So they take their, their initializing variable and they encrypt it. Okay. And that's how they do it to, uh, to make it sufficiently random. And there's a bunch of actually very technical stuff in why they encrypt it the way that they do rather than using less computationally in, in, intensive encryption because it requires more memory. Hmm. Interesting. If you're thinking in a computer science way, it's a good practical example of a method of trading CPU cycles for memory in, in, instead of what we usually do, which is trading memory for computer cycles. Right. We calculate a thing once and we save it to memory. Yeah. Well, when you're doing really high performance applications, memory is too slow. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So part of the architecture of this is how do we not blow out the other side of the connection? <laughs> yeah. But they've also noticed that some networks don't like being scanned. Hmm, go figure. Yeah. Um, so over time, they've identified a lot of things. In fact, part of the distribution when you get mass scan is a list of networks that they have accumulated that have asked to be excluded from this kind of scanning. Is that just kind of like honor system? like More or less. Because I know like... Well, it is the honor system, mm -hmm. except that there's consequences. If you were to take your connection or your connection at work, mm -hmm. even worse. Let, let's say you're, I don't know, me sometime earlier in my career when I was less thoughtful, knowledgeable, and careful. Um, <laughs> and you wanted to scan the internet mm -hmm. or the wrong section of the internet. Right. And you really blasted it. You made it happen. Well, if the network admin on the other side submits your IPs or IP range to the wrong blacklist that's shared to other places, mm. well, now things don't work anymore. If you got on the Sorbs list, for example, for spamming their, 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 um, their mail server. What is, what is Sorbs? It's one of the spam open relay lists. Okay. Uh, well, there's spam, there's open relay lists, which are identified as being actual open relays. And then there are other lists that are associated with the same kind of, uh, the, the same shared blacklists. Mm -hmm. These are sources of a lot of junk or pure spam emails. Okay, gotcha. Spoofed emails or unwanted emails, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, one of the next toolbox or, or fundamentals episodes is going to be about email because email is a simple protocol with a whole lot of complexity built onto it because of over the years, lots of stuff has been added. Yeah. I'm wondering, do we, do we have a blacklist like that for like phones? Cause you know, like spam phone calls are so prevalent and you can tell a phone like, Hey, take me off your, off your list or whatever. But um, is there like a blacklist where like, you could pull down that information on your Android phone. The reason I ask is I'm constantly getting a spam call right now. Um, <laughs> well, so that's actually really hard and maybe something we, we, we don't want to get too deep into in the middle of an episode. Yeah. But part of the difficulty with that is that the bad guys, the perpetrators can, can get new phone ranges pretty easily in today's SIP-based world. So you're not able to block them by their phone number and since not everything's going IP to IP, like SIP to SIP, you don't have the ability to block network vendors or authenticate the, the other side very well. Gotcha. So you end up with 
not a great environment for technical controls. Mm -hmm. The providers are in a better position to identify that stuff based on behavior from the routing level or what we would think of as the routing level. Uh, I think they'd call it the switching level, but it's a... Yeah, same concept. Well, yeah, it's it's at the data link layer. Yeah. Or sorry, it's at the network layer, not the data link layer. Mm, okay. But uh, yeah, it, that is unfortunately a surprisingly hard problem to solve, mostly because it's a kludge of getting the plain old phone system working with IP. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, it used to be a little bit easier to deal with this because of the relative expense to get new phone number space. Right. But anyway, getting blacklisted is a big consequence, which is why they tell you to be careful. They actually have it if you read their fact on what you want to do with mass scan. If you get blacklisted in one place, you may be blacklisted in a lot of places you want to be on the internet. Mm, okay, gotcha. So respecting the lines and maybe not using an IP that's important to you <laughs> are all things to keep in mind when you're doing this kind of thing. Good to know if I ever uh, play around with the tool because uh, God knows I definitely do not read instructions very well. So are any of us really good at that? I mean, it didn't work. It didn't work again. It didn't work again. Maybe I'll check the man page. I'll, I'll just hit it with a hammer and see what happens. I mean, I grew up playing like Nintendo games. None of those came with an instruction manual. I just figured out on my own. Well, MassScan has made a point of mimicking the command switches of Nmap. So if you're already pretty good with Nmap, you could probably get MassScan working mm, okay. by just yeah. rattling off the same command switches you're familiar with without reading the instructions. Oh, that's actually like really nice. Oh no. Because <laughs> there's there's so many tools where like one tool does one like identical thing as another one, but they change all the switches and toggles. And it's like like, why? Why'd you do that? I'm not sure they did this, but if it were me, I would say, hey, Nmap already has this really mature set of command switches to use and, and way of parsing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And people are used to it. Well, it's not just that. It's I could just steal their code and use that for all of my argument processing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> why would I write it myself? Yeah, exactly. I'm lazy. <laughs> Especially if it's under the uh, the GPL. Like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is. Um. But the number of abuse calls that they were getting for scanning people's networks <laughs> was the reason that they put up that internet police site that I was talking about earlier. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. It's like, I'll call the internet police on you. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you out here and give you somebody to call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so instead of doing the scanning yourself, you may be familiar with Shodan. Uh -huh. Yeah. And Shodan was started by a guy named John Matherly in 2009. And it's billed as like Google for internet services. Yeah, yeah. They have a set of services that they that they do banner grabbing for. And they're constantly rescanning just like Google is rescraping websites. It is like I, I found that, I think I just found that randomly. Um, well, I was just kind of screwing around when I was in college one time. So what, did you, what kind of stuff did you have you used it for? Just playing around, actually. Um, I have not used it for anything else other than I found the site and I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. Like, what can I find? And entering like my college um, domain name into things and seeing like, like, oh, look at look at all these things that scanned. And, yeah. you know, some of these things like I feel like probably shouldn't be public on the Internet. Like, yeah, I don't know why they're outward facing, but. Well, and that's a thing that that Shodan's really useful for is is uh, seeing if you're exposing stuff to the internet that you didn't mean to. Yeah. Sometimes figuring out 
what you're exposing to the internet isn't the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll tell you as, as a longtime firewall admin, I've written tools a few, uh, the same tool a few different times with, with uh, a couple of advancements that can process the rule set and tell you what's exposed to a particular traffic set. Mm. But I know that that's something that I had to roll myself because there aren't a lot of tools out there that do those things. Yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky in my day-to-day -day environment because we are behind like at least two layers of firewalls. Yeah. So like, I don't have to worry about anything, you know, accidentally being public facing because I would have to go through so much bureaucracy to make it public facing. There's no way it's leaking out. And that's part of why the bureaucracy is there. Yeah. Um, is that keeping track of this stuff isn't easy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of paperwork. Well, yeah, it's hard to automate from your rule set what's exposed there. So you make, mm -hmm. you make a process that ends up confirming that you've documented everything you really want to know about what you're making public, which has the uh, added effect of making people really think about whether or not they want to make it public. Yeah, exactly. It's like by making it a giant heaping pain in the ass. Why are you going to you know, let the public uh, log into this random dashboard? Of yours? Like, hmm? It's like, oh, yeah, I guess they really don't need to. Although that whole world is going to kind of get flipped a little bit on its head as we move to the cloud and, and enterprises are more and more focused on direct to service access. Mm -hmm. it's going to get abstracted to stronger authentication at the application layer. So you have that random dashboard, but in front of it is strong authentication going to your, your cloud active directory that makes you authenticate, maybe multi-factor authenticate before you can get to the dashboard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's what the future holds. A lot of organizations aren't close to that if they didn't start in the cloud. No, I mean, we have we have a few missions that are moving towards the cloud. Well, being in the cloud and going direct to service are not the same thing. Mm, yeah. So if you are treating the cloud as a super remote data center, you can move the virtual server that you had on your VMware over to your to an instance in Amazon. And that still requires you to go through your network to get there. Mm -hmm. But you could, if we're talking Amazon, you could put a Cognito authentication front end into it, make it available through an application gateway directly to the internet and have people be able to log in without going through your network to that dashboard. And as long as they authenticated through that Cognito gateway. Yeah, yeah. That's the direct to service model that I think a lot of people wanna go to. In fact, that's what the Amazon sales guys are gonna tell you is super easy. But it's not super easy. Yeah, that's why I'm never gonna mention to a lot of my missions. Mm -hmm. NASA as a whole does, we do a lot of our science with a lot of agencies around the world. Like we do not discriminate, you know, uh, Russia, China, North Korea doesn't care to like work with us, but you know, everywhere else, um, we're fine working with science people. Yeah. So a lot of the scientists are like, Hey, I've got this dashboard. Uh, I've got a scientist over in like, uh, you know, the Ukraine and one in Moscow that need to access it. I'm like, well, they're not gonna, <laughs> I can't give you the public facing and there's no way I'm going to open the VPN up to them, so. And that technology is what would make that a lot easier. I could even see NASA being on the forefront of some of this, but there's a lot of back-end concerns that you really need to work through before you can do that, especially at scale. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Shodan probably uses the same kind of um, discovery scanning mechanism that MassScan uses, MassScan and ScanRand use, but they don't really disclose how they do it, so I don't know. Mm. But the banner grabbing isn't really great for doing that way, so those things require the same kind of 
connection initiation as nmap might. Mm -hmm, okay. Although uh, the showdown stuff that is published is that they've custom developed what they use. Yeah. Have you heard about some of the things that people have found when scanning the internet? Are we talking the open webcams? Watch people do all sorts of stuff? The open webcams are an important one of this. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that, that was a big thing uh, three years ago, I think. Uh, There's like a whole post on Reddit of like, hey, look at all these webcams. So the first big one for webcams was TrendNet security cameras. There's actually an FTC file on them, a file 122-3090. The name does sound really familiar. Well, TrendNet, I'm hoping it sounds more familiar than the FTC. The, the, no, the trend, yeah, the trend, the trend not the, the, the actual number. Like, oh, that's my, that's my favorite ETC file number. Uh, FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission. Or FTC. Because in January 2014, they found that TrendNet was guilty of false advertising because they said in their advertisement that they allowed you to uh, put their, their webcam on the internet and be able to view it securely. Which manifestly was not true because there was no security and right. you could go and look at any camera you could find. I think that started the rash of the whole, like everyone taping their webcam on their laptop and stuff like that. That was one of the things. There were some things, uh, one that I remember distinctly because it was so distasteful is that a, um, a school administrator, when the school was giving out laptops put um, as part of their security software, something that allowed for remote control and remote view of the, uh, of the webcam. Oh, really? For, you know, teenagers. Yeah, it is. And some of the students reported that that light would go on when they didn't expect it to. Mm, yeah. But we know that, the, that that's also been used with various pieces of, of malware and whatnot. So it's not just your camera on your device needs probably needs some user level execution to get into it whereas one of these internet of things cameras is just basically a web interface attached to a camera yeah and you've got to love the security that is in a lot of these iot devices yes <laughs> we might have to focus on that specifically but the internet of things is the internet of, of ownage in a lot of ways. It's That would be an interesting episode. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite story is the guy who, I think it was like a garage door opener or something. It was like that was his IoT device. And someone hacked into the webpage and got admin access and found out that you could basically like um, get into anyone else's device. So they called up the CEO of the company and they told him like, hey, I just hacked into your, like, your web server. It was completely open. Uh, there was hardly any security, and now I have access to pretty much everyone's garage doors and everything. He's like, no, you, no, you don't. And he started opening the guy's garage door <laughs> while he was on the phone. And the guy like immediately hung up, and they patched the system apparently like an hour later. Well, at least they patched it quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess when you're, you're affecting the CEO of the company, he's going to move things right along. Well, so one of the things, uh, this is actually... The first I really learned of, uh, of, of, of mass scan, I knew about ScanRAN, but I didn't know about mass scan, was I saw the DEF CON presentation, DEF CON 22, the link should be in the show notes, where they scanned for all the VNC systems that were available without authentication. <laughs> oh, damn. And at the time, or roughly around that time, there was also a VNC vulnerability that allowed you to bypass authentication. Absolutely. I think it might've been patched at the time, but that doesn't mean people patched for it. Right, right. But that leads to one particular point about scanning the internet. Scanning essentially isn't a crime, 
I am not your lawyer, and some of this is actually up for some level of uh, discretion and selective enforcement. But generally speaking, from a practical, what we've actually seen prosecuted point of view, scanning isn't a crime. But taking any action to bypass security of an endpoint can be. You know, it makes sense in the real world. If you drive by a store once, that's not a crime. If yeah. you drive by, you know, multiple times during the day, you start to look suspicious, but still not technically a crime. Nope. It's the moment you stop, get out, and jump the fence. Yeah, jump the fence. Try and jimmy the lock. Yeah, you can look in the window all you want, but you can't jimmy the lock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, picking locks is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, I do need to learn how to do that. So... Other things that have that have been found, this is where how a lot of SCADA-based SCADA systems, industrial control systems and traffic lights and stuff have been found. Oh, man, I can't facepalm hard enough for that. But yeah, I mean. Yeah, just on the internet. Things that you didn't think were on the internet, on the internet. Like, well, I want to access it from home, so why not? Yeah, well, and I could see being not particularly careful. There's a lot of organizations that have been around for a long time. If you're in government, you know this, that have a lot of publicly routable address space that they use essentially privately. Uh So the thing is, it's not that hard if you're not regimented and, and careful about the way that you're doing your routing to make networks public that you didn't think were public. Yep especially if you're not doing a very good job of putting ACLs or firewalling the networks. Mm -hmm. So I could see at least some of these cases where the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing and made the network public that wasn't supposed to. (laughs) I think the more common cases, what you're talking about is, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could get access to this? Yeah, like, "Eh, I don't want to go into the office all the time. I want to manage it from my phone. Yeah, exactly. So there's also... There have been some problems with external exploitation of home router management interfaces and various exploits of processing of inbound traffic uh, of home routers. D-Link had a pretty big problem with it in 2017. I didn't get a comprehensive list of all of those things, but these are pretty recent ones. D-Link had a significant problem with that. Hiraway, Highway, whatever, however you want to pronounce it, Realtek and Zytel had a pretty significant set of these in 2019 of allowing for remote control of routers mm-hmm. for participation in botnets and whatnot. In fact, a very pervasive worm on the internet, you may basically constantly see traffic for if you're looking at your outside pre-filtering interface on a network. Uh, you're on an enterprise and you put a bro sensor out on the outside interface just to see what comes in. You may very well see the... Mirai worm or something like it trying to find an IoT device in your address space. This reminds me, um, there's always constant talk um, in my workplace that China is actively trying to hack into our systems over and over again. And I constantly bring it up that, well, yes, there is a lot of traffic coming from China. A lot of it is a lot of these scans and like just very, um, you know, low hanging fruit just trying to see what's open. Yeah. I'm like, they're not actively like attacking us, like, you know, at key crucial points. It's just daily scans to see what's out there and like what we could grab. So beginning at about 2016 or so, 
I think it was the director of the FBI. It might, might have been Homeland Security. I don't remember, but he basically said something like, yeah, China's attacking us constantly, but they're like a bad burglar. They're just trying every window and every door. The problem is they is the, that sometimes they're open. Yeah, yeah. Like it generates a lot of noise traffic and it looks very scary, but like lock your doors, lock your windows. A comprehensive information security practice can be really important there of having what they call the like the real defense in depth mm -hmm. from filtering your outbound traffic to restricting administrative privilege on the desktop to having uh, various detection means on both the host and the network, all that stuff kind of all works together. Some things will slip are easier to slip through some controls than others. And, and uh, so you can't rely on just one thing. But having the stack of all of that stuff does make it difficult to, to um, I mean, I could tell you where I'm at, where we have a lot of controls in place. We're investigating a lot more false positives than true positives. Yeah. And the true positives come up early enough where they don't have a very large impact or haven't for a significant period of time, fingers crossed by the grace of God go I. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the things that we never know. There, there's such a wide range of sophistication and attacks. It can be very difficult to know whether or not you're lucky or good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a thing that I'm constantly afraid of. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the Mirai worm was discovered in August 2016. I couldn't find anybody to say that it's completely dead at this point. It's been a little bit since I've done straight analysis of the inbound traffic, so I couldn't tell you from my own personal experience, but it would not shock me at all if Mirai was still working and there are similar worms that people have tried that are essentially the flip side of this kind of scanning. What was the NSA thing they were using uh, to break into uh, RDP, open RDP for uh, for Windows on the internet? Um, Blue Crash? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's Blue Crash. I was I was thinking Gidra, but that's a different thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that was that was another thing. Like people just scanned for like, hey, do you have a random Windows server? pointing out to the internet that has RDP, you know, yeah. open. And that's not a port that Shodan grabs on, but you could use MassScan to find it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Mirai did recruiting for botnets and a lot of those botnets, they use the botnet to do distributed denial of service attacks against uh, Steam, against Valve, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We know that anything that's a botnet may be a botnet for hire. Yeah, I'm, I was gonna say that that'll teach them to not make it. Um... Halfway yes. So scanning the internet is using one host to fragment a lot of traffic so you can scan the whole internet. But a worm is basically doing the same things by distributing the section of the internet that it's scanning mm -hmm. by creating lots of child workers on your computer <laughs> for many values of you. Yeah. Um, but it's accomplishing a similar, a, a similar end. So this is another reason why you might scan the networks that you're responsible for, is to see what's exposed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does come up a lot of times that like, you know, hey, like, you know, FTP is open. It's on an FTP server, why is the port open? Um, you know, SNMP, like all these different things, yeah, will pop up and it's like, you know, a lot of them just kind of come default or, you know, your Linux installation was in the bare bones install. So it comes with a lot of the services just running. Mm -hmm. I just realized uh, just recently one of my users had done a uh, fuse mount from his desktop 
um, on base into one of my systems because we allow outbound traffic um, to the base network itself. Mm -hmm. And we used uh, the SSHFS um, views on Ubuntu to, to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I just happened to um, be looking at different mounts on the system and saw that one pop up. And I was like, wait a second, what the hell is that? And it was mounted to his home directory. So, you know, I called him out on it and I was like, yeah, no. It was doing it through basically SFTP, right? Or SCP SFTP, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I believe it. At least he did it securely. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's just one of those things where <laughs> like, I did not realize that was on the system by default. Yeah. So I removed it. But yeah. That if I'd done a, uh, you know, like some uh, scans and stuff, I'm sure, you know, there's other stuff that will uh, come up, different ports open, whatnot. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you, back in, again, my, my less careful, less knowledgeable days, one of the things that I had some fun with was mounting um, NFS volumes that I could find out on the internet. When I first went to school for cybersecurity and got my associate's degree, I did not pay for a single book. So like, you know, it was easy back then, torrent files, um, or you could just, you know, Google the PDF or the title and pull that down from the internet. Yeah. But there was one book that came with a CD, which gave you basically uh, a miniature like Windows lab to work on. It was, a, it was an Active Directory class. Cool. And my teacher was like, you, you, need, you need this book, but you have to get the CD too. I searched around the internet, found a teacher who was teaching the exact same course who had uploaded everything to a uh, random FTP site and was not secure in any way. And like, it, like multiple links, uh, but I finally found the course and I just pulled down the ISO and everything. And I was like, yes, that's who I don't have to buy this book. This is one of those situations where it's like, are you sure that me hacking the class doesn't get me a passing grade? Yeah, I, I was like, you know, I feel like this should give me an A right here. Like I figured out how to <laughs> get the book for the class. But, yeah. but now we get to the tragedy of the end of this. Scanning the internet is about to become nearly impossible. By about to, I mean, whenever we start actually using IPv6. Mm -hmm. Where the IPv4 internet, about 4.3 billion addresses, significantly less than that if you look what functionally can be used. IPv6 is 340 unidecillion addresses, 10 to the 36th. It's the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet. Mm -hmm. Even any individual end prefix, kind of any used network, uh, I can tell you that some of the ISPs that have done basic rollouts to the home for IPv6 won't give you anything with less addresses than a slash 64 prefix, which is 18.4 quintillion addresses or the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet. And that's just for one end network. So even at the super accelerated speeds, you do end up with some real difficulties in doing mass scanning of the IPv6 paradigm. Yeah, it's gonna be difficult to like scan your, your network. Yeah. Just your one network for any like random IPs that show up. Yeah, you're, I think the, some of the techniques that I was talking about of actually extracting it from the rule sets of the blocking systems you use mm -hmm. are gonna be what you need to do or the cloudish paradigm of only explicitly allowing access because it's more allowing stuff in a lot of cases in the cloud is more than just saying open a port, but actually creating an application handler for it. Mm -hmm. But like, that's the world. But I will tell you, all the clouds that I've worked with so far are not very far along on their IPv6 implementation and support. Uh, I can tell you on our end, we are 
totally not there. Yeah. I might try and do something on IPv6 at some point. It's really interesting how they made some significant changes from the ideas behind v4 to v6 and um, the reasons why we ended up with the v6 that we have and some of the things that are assumed in v6 that might surprise you if you haven't come at it from a network engineer's point of view. Yeah, that would be interesting because I don't know too much about it. I know um, it was barely touched upon when I went to school and even when I came back to teach. Mm -hmm. Still, some of the classes I taught barely touched upon IPv6. Yeah. The problem is almost nobody understands V6. <laughs> yeah, like there's been mandates. Um, I've seen like, you know, I feel like one email every year. It's like, hey, you know, we're going to hard push the IPv6 by like, you know, 2022, uh, 2024, uh, 2020, uh, 2030 maybe? Yeah. I, we will implement IPv6 when the James Webb Space launches. Yeah, well, the problem with V6, and this is the teaser, is we're very close to being entirely out of IPv4 address space. Mm -hmm. At the root level of distribution, they have none left. The individual um, regional registrars have some address space left. Uh, there might be some clawback. We were talking a little bit earlier how a lot of organizations that have been on the internet for a long time uh, have a lot of unused address space, or at least not publicly routed address space that could be used as private. That will take some wrangling. Yeah, and we'd still be kind of running on the fumes. We would be. That would be a way of extending things. Mm -hmm. One of the big controversies right now in certain very small corners of the internet is whether IPs are really property and whether you can sell them. Mm. But by distributing IPs the way that we're talking about, you actually exacerbate one of the problems that IPv6 solves. But I'm not going to get too far into that because it takes a lot of groundwork to really explain what that means. Right. Um, anyway, so that's scanning the internet. Do you want to go ahead and do that now? No, I'm starting up mass scanner right now. Awesome. What was it you said about blacklists? <laughs> uh, there, there's an exclude list that's, that's a text file in there. Nope, I'm doing it all. Well, uh, we may, may not be able to have our, our, um, our Zoom call next week. <laughs> Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.